Welcome to the Adoptee Diaries, the podcast where we dive into the untold stories of adoptees and navigate the complex landscape of adoption. I'm your host, Bethany Frazier, and today we have a very special episode in store for you. As one of the leading experts in adoption, foster care, and child welfare, Adam Pertman, CEO and founder of the National Center on Adoption and Permanency, or NCAP, has influenced policy, shaped laws, and advocated for change. His groundbreaking research, writing, and thought-provoking commentaries have educated professionals, students, and the general public. His classic book, Adoption Nation, has been hailed as a pivotal resource on the subject. During our conversation, we discuss the mission and the work of NCAP. We explore key challenges and opportunities in the adoption landscape and gain insight from Adam's experiences in both journalism and advocacy. Prior to establishing NCAP, Adam served as the head of the Donaldson Adoption Institute, a renowned research and advocacy think tank. Adam's work, including research, writing, and advocacy efforts, has had significant impact on improving child welfare practices, influencing legislation, and educating professionals and the public. Before his involvement in the adoption field, Adam had a successful career as a senior reporter and editor with the Boston Globe. Throughout his career, he covered major events and issues, both nationally and internationally. Adam is highly sought after as a speaker and has been featured in a variety of media outlets, including major print, broadcasting, and online publications. He's received numerous awards and honors for his contributions to adoption and permanency placement issues. Adam holds positions in several organizations and serves as a senior advisor in the Massachusetts chapter of Foster Care Alumni of America. Adam is passionate about improving the lives of children and families and he and his wife are parents to two children through adoption. Let us go. So Adam Pertman, welcome to the Adoptee Diaries. I am so excited to finally meet you. Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure to be here. So listen, I read your bio in the intro and just wow, your previous life before your current hat. Um, and your current work with child welfare was in the journalistic reporting world. And you have reported on some of the most fascinating moments in time. Um, so I'm always fascinated by people that have these amazingly cool jobs and totally drop it off and pivot, which sounds like from your bio, that's what you did. Is that indeed what you did to move from journalism to kind of your next role, your next pivot in life? Well, it, it was honestly, it was a, a fairly natural transition. I, it, journalists love to write books, you know, and, and aspire to do it and wonder what's my topic going to be. And so it really was a, a, a smooth transition. I did a series of stories for the Boston Globe uh, called The Adoption Revolution. So there you had it. I, you know, and it was it, frankly just, I was an adoptive dad when I wrote it, but it wasn't why I wrote it. I wrote it because when I became a father, I saw this world out there that I didn't know much about and I thought most people didn't know much about. And so I wrote about it. I, I joke in speeches that, you know, if a, a journalist gets a speeding ticket with a new radar gun, they want to write about the radar gun. Um, so, yeah, you know, yeah. my experience brought me to the story and I wrote it and, and it, you know, I discovered it not during the writing of that series, but um, frankly, because uh, I went then I went back to write other stories about other things. But at some point I thought, hey, this may be my my first book. You know, everybody wants to write a book. 
And yeah, yeah. it was during the writing the book that I really understood that this was more than a journalistic enterprise. And so, yeah. and, and you know, that sense. it was about it's me, my family, my kids, and all the people like us who are not well understood. I mean, secrets and lies, you know, it's the, it was the nature of the institution of adoption for a very long time. And still, and it still is too much the case. Uh, and you're, you know, that from your own personal experience. Um, and it, it is very much because of folks like you, not literally you, um, that I thought this was important. You know, lie, we lie about things we're ashamed of and embarrassed about. Um, you know, and it's, and we should not be ashamed of ourselves, of our families, how we form them. Um, we need to get get past that, not over it, but you know, get to a better place. And I thought I could play some role in that. And that's so that there, that was the transition, really. And it was still a writing job. It was a book instead of yeah. journalism per se. And that led to the next step and the next one. And you know, honestly, as you were just speaking, so it felt like this big pivot when I was when I learn about you and I see that you had this whole. I would say past life, but really it wasn't. It was you being inquisitive about the current experience of which you were landing on, which at the time, I think you've been very open that your adoption came out, was sort of born on or out of, um, I think you said that you're, you were, you're, you and your wife were in, yeah, right, right? You experienced infertility, sure. which is how you landed on adoption because you're a journalist and a reporter. You just naturally have this like curious minds and you're, is that, so it doesn't feel as, Unrelated, I guess, that you shifted. Oh, it's out not of at all unrelated. Yeah. You know, yeah. journalists who are science writers wind up writing some book about some somebody or something that they wrote about in their journalism. Yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. pretty natural progression. Um, and and I will say that it, in terms of that, um, the skills I learned as a journalist, you know, the research skills, the writing skills, the editing, it came in not just handy, but were pivotal in the next chapter of my life. You know, I went on to head the Donaldson Adoption Institute and it was all about research and it was all about the reports that we put out and the advocacy that we did. And that was, you know, that I, I was in training as a journalist uh, yep. for that next phase of my life, as it turns out. And what year, how old are your kids now? You have two boys? It, yeah, 29 and 26, um, okay. amazingly. Okay. Amazing. So the rules and the laws and the policies and the things that you experienced when you were adopting them, which they're a lot younger than me. So um, I was born in the seventies, which I know I yep. told you the world changed, thankfully, between when I was born and adopted versus when you were experiencing it. So do you keep seeing, well, let me just also tell the listeners because now you are CEO and founder of the National Center on Adoption and Permanency or NCAP as we in the business affectionately call you. Um, so in NCAP, you know, I, you, you, you entered into this world that now you were a part of, which is the adoption, but you expanded it. You were doing all child welfare. So tell us a little bit about NCAP and the work that you're doing now. Sure. Um, the, so I was at the Donaldson Institute for, you know, roughly a decade, a little more than that. Um, and we did a lot of very good work. I'm very proud of, of what we got to do. Um, what I realized after I left, before I left, before I left, was that something was missing. There was some some piece that we weren't, I mean, this was my own conclusion, not everybody has to agree. Um, but my feeling was that we were doing all this good, important work. We were finally bringing adoption, you know, out of the shadows and into the light. And that's a complicated thing. And um, 
and and uh, that's that's good stuff. I mean, adoption is very complicated, um, and and you know, it, it it is not a win-win as it was so portrayed for so many years and decades. You know, it's it's it, there's some tough stuff that we haven't it, we haven't come to uh, terms with even today, uh, so, uh, and we can talk about that. Um, but what I the big realization. Um, well, let me back up for a second to say that most of, and this is critically important to say, um, and it's a building block. Most adoptions today, and have been this has been the case for years and years, um, are from foster care. They're not private infant. They're not infant adoptions. They're not adoptions from abroad. Um, they are uh, adoptions of children who were removed from their homes by state governments for reasons of abuse and neglect. Again, more complicated than that. There are socioeconomic factors and uh, poverty factors, and all and women's rights factors, all kinds of stuff, and race factors that that are that make it a more complicated picture than than I'm going to draw here. But for but straightforwardly, so but that the children are in the system for a reason, and the abuse and neglect, and as well as the system itself cause trauma. And so we have a traumatized population that is the source of most adoptions. Uh, most of the kids are older, they're in sibling groups, they're disproportionately kids of color, all sorts of factors uh, involved. And so the model that, and this is sort of the revelation, what led me to start NCAP, what I came to understand and believe based on all the research we did and all the work I've done, da, 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 um, is that the model we have in place, which I call the paradigm we have in place, is all about child placement. Every child deserves to have a safe, permanent, loving family. Nobody can argue with that. That's great. You know, family of origin when possible, a new family when necessary. Okay, great. But what I, but if the population you're serving is overwhelmingly traumatized to some degree, you know, some little, some lot, um, is and, and has special needs to some degree, some little, some a lot, then just putting them in a new place or, or back in their original home is not enough. That's like, that, that's like putting, forgive me for the analogy, but that's like putting someone in a wheelchair into a new house without a ramp and saying, good luck, hope everything works out for you. Sure, right. No, yeah, um, totally. what we don't do is provide those families, new and old, um, with the wherewithal to help their children be successful, to help their children thrive. That means support systems, that means services, that means education, that means resources. If we take these kids out of their homes and with the implicit promise, sometimes explicit, that we're gonna make your life better. You know, you've been abused and neglected, we're gonna improve it. And then we give them almost nothing with which to improve it, then what what are we doing here? And so NCAP in a nutshell the, is, is designed, is intended to move policy and practice in adoption and child welfare more, more writ large um, from its current model, which is what I call child placement model. And by model, I mean paradigm, but is all about child placement, you know, and that's where the metrics are, that's where the money is and on and on. From that, to a, a new paradigm where the, the the bottom line goal is family success, not just placement. Um, so yes, safe, permanent, loving family, but every child deserves a safe, permanent, loving, and successful family. How do we achieve that? If we move the goal to be that, 
then we uh, align, then we train differently. We provide resources differently. We fund differently. And that's what NCAP is formed to do, to move it so that we're actually giving children and, fa and their families the resources, the knowledge, the wherewithal to, to get to a better place. Yeah, wow. And so, like, amazing what you do, obviously. And I shared my story with you. And I've just only been aware for a couple of years now that there's this whole existence that supports the adoption, foster, et cetera, constellation out there. And I only knew my story, which sure. was, you know, placement, everybody move on. And nobody, so it was fascinating to me. I still don't know. I know the answer. So maybe you do with all your research. Do you mm -hmm. know when it shifted that support? When did we make these these changes? Where was it always there? It just wasn't there. Well, we were still making them. I mean, there are parents. Yeah. Who, there are still parents who don't tell their kids they're adopted. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, that's and and we still yeah. don't. You know, an end cap exists because all those things are not in place. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So we are. We have certainly made progress. Um, my first book, Adoption Nation. You know, yeah. that's what it taught, and and then it was updated a decade later. So your readers know yeah. that. Um, but well, let's it, talk about that. We yeah, we will. But too. just to finish okay. the thought, I mean, yeah. it's it, it's all about the transition from secrecy to being out in the open for the most part. It's all about shedding stigma and working toward normalization for the most part. But this is a journey that we are still on very much. So um, we we ain't there yet. Um, we know, the, the reforms still need. Otherwise, yeah. why would organizations like mine exist and all the other ones that you that you're discovering? Um, yeah, they yeah, exist true. because we're not there yet. They exist because women are still ashamed. You know, shamed into um, into giving up the kids they want to raise. Um, adoptees are still stigmatized as lesser. Um, you know, you're adopted. It's still used as an insult. What the hell is that all about? Yeah, yeah um, you're, right. you know. you're right. It's But, you know, when I find out that some of the organizations, like um, I know we talked about Barker and some of these organizations, which I think Barker might be one of the second. If, I think if it's not the oldest, it's like the second oldest. It's very, it's very old maybe came out of the 40s or something like that, which always, again, it's amazing to me. I definitely lived in this bubble and I did not know um, all the resources were out there and all the researcher researchers were out there, quite frankly, that were saying, hey, we're not doing right by these kids by sending them. We think, yay, they're in new homes, but it's not to your point. Yay, they're in new homes and they have ongoing support for this journey throughout their whole lives. Um, I, I spoke to somebody last week, actually, from the um, On Your Feet Foundation, which is in Illinois. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about on the call was some support organizations are there to say, now that somebody's, you know, perhaps relinquished and entered a baby, uh, placed a baby up for adoption, that woman would get support for three or six months. And then that's that, right? So one of the things that I keep kind of talking about is it's it is this journey um i was 43 before i started to do my ancestry dna my birth father who i found as a result of the dna was in his 60s so for 60 something years this man knew that he had a baby yep. he had no rights to the baby because of the and not only no rights he didn't didn't have any communication relationship no, no. And so I'm, I found out when I was, you know, again, I found out at 43 that his, he was aware of my existence, named me. They actually, my parents actually kept me 
for about six weeks. And then um, my birth mother, too much pressure from her side of the family, wound up saying, okay, enough is enough. And when he was out of the house, she packed our things up and took me to a neighboring town um, to the, I think, Lutheran Social Services and was able to say, let's just say father's unknown. And therefore, absolutely. Dis- yep. Totally. Yeah. So you know how the story goes. I do indeed. I, I do indeed. I wish it was yeah. rare. I know. I know. Well, that was what was surprising to me when I started these conversations is it's not rare and meeting people like you that are not surprised by people like me is still, um, I guess, comforting to me to know that I'm not alone for sure. No. Um, but, but also upsetting that there's more of us. So, so I want to talk about your book. Um, so Adoption Nation, which is highly regarded and considered a classic in the field, I would say, <laughs> um, referenced a lot. And for anybody not familiar, maybe you can just tell us, you started to talk about it earlier, but did the book come out of you adopting? When did you write the book? How old were your kids? The first edition came it came out uh, late 2000 or 2001. Um, and then uh, more than a decade later, I entirely updated it. Um, which so I what, find fascinating. Did you have to update it because oh, it it it, it, it's, it things don't stay static. Um, yeah, and yeah. and it's very it's if you've read it, it's very it, it's full of stories. I mean, it's all about people's stories, but they're the stories that make a point about the shame, the stigma, the 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 progress we've made, the progress we haven't made. You know, race issues, identity issues, all kinds of. I try to it, it, it legal as well, but always told through the through stories. So that and yeah. and you know, the best compliments I get are that it reads like a novel, which is I'll take it, I'll take it. But it's it's it, it but it is. But if you flip to the back, you'll see pages and pages of research references. Um, so I, that stuff see, it deliberately seeps in throughout. You know, what? I wanted to be re, uh, have a research base, an experiential base, and okay. so um, it, it needed updating and could use it again <laughs> because yeah, the research right. advances, the experience now. advances, policy changes, and you know, it, and it's all the subtitle I, I should say is that is that really tells the tale, and it's how the adoption revolution is transforming our families and America, because okay. you know the the advent of more open adoption more openness and adoption um, changes things, changes attitudes, helps people, it reveals blemishes as well as the good stuff. Um, and so there is profound change and that change isn't limited to its own, you know, to its own little sphere. The example I always love, used to love to use because adoption from China is pretty much evaporated. But, you know, one Chinese, one Chinese girl getting her bat mitzvah <laughs> um, yeah. doesn't just change that that family. Everyone in that congregation in that um, it understands that something is going on here. And, and you know, what does a Jew look like? Well, that girl, for one thing. Um, yeah. And so it, it, that's a really small glimpse. But it's it, it gives you an idea of just how profound some of these changes really are. But we don't discuss them. Sociologists don't really study them. And I have. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, again, it's issues of race, ethnicity, uh, what constitutes a family. Um, it, anyway, you, you you get the idea. And so right, the book right. really Which, chronicles all of that, um, explains all of that, looks at the phenomena that caused all of it. And uh, again, I, I don't say this defensively. I just don't want people to think it's an academic tome. Um, it, it, it's all through the eyes of folks like you. It's all by telling people the stories yeah. of people like you. 
And thank you for telling them and sharing them. Um, it's it's still amazing to me that when I started to talk about the story that I just uncovered in my 40s, you know, people are like, hey, can you tell us more? Can you tell us more yeah, so we can they're learn good stories. from there? They're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're well, unfortunately good stories because you well, shouldn't we, have been deprived of that information and knowledge from the get-go. I mean, I have a question. I have a question before we move off your book. What yeah. if there was, was there some huge, massive, like what's the biggest takeaway or change or surprise between book one, book two? Was it the openness because states started opening or no, was there no. anything that stood I, I, out? I don't think there was a shocker from from book one and book two. And, it, and it, thank you for calling that because they're very different. Um, yeah. I don't think so. I think it was an evolution and and in some cases a disappointment i have to say out loud because i thought we'd make more progress i thought we'd get to a to better places and you know we 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 have not really done that i i will introduce a maybe controversial piece of this and we don't have to belabor it i just want to make the point that things change you know the 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 end of row versus way the end of row is going to impact adoption. I, I I have my theories on the the numerous ways I think that's going to happen. But you know, a few years from now, I think we're going to see more kids in foster care. I think we're going to see more infant placements um, because people who who weren't ready for it uh, didn't think about parenting are suddenly going to have to think about parenting. Um, now there will also be more people who raise their own kids, and that's all good and fine as long as they have the resources and desire to do it. But we would like a world in which people are choosing when they have children and not being sort of induced by the government to do so. Yeah, um, yeah. But that, but anyway, without getting too much into the politics, it will certainly have impact on the institution of adoption, which will yeah. have impact in other ways as well, so, social ways, economic ways. And so, you know, if I were back to your previous question, I would have to think about that if I were updating the book today. Yeah, um, so things yeah, change, so things true. change. Because you wrote book, so I hear you, and it is, you know, sad and true. There were not as many changes between one and two. Um, that's interesting, sad, and that's why you exist, right? That's why all these organizations exist, exactly to your right. point. Yeah. Exactly right. um, what do you think about the advent of DNA and well, all the tests? That's the biggest, to me, shift. What about, what do you think about that? That, that shift came started, after book. so it, 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 that's, that's exactly right. So from from the first book to the second, I mentioned DNA in the first one. I went heavy on the second. By the second, what what I wrote and I believe is that DNA testing. Back up for a second. The internet put the near final nails in the coffin of closed adoption. DNA testing will put the final nails in in that coffin as and it should be. And it's a good coffin to have. Um, let's close it up. Um, because it, the internet opened up search and reunion like nothing ever, nothing before it, like nothing yeah. before it. <clears throat> Social media and the internet generally for for finding people, for finding information, you know, it was transformational. And then, but there were some numbers that, you know, it was insufficient for. Um, most of those, or many, many of those, um, can find what they want to find, um, advertently or inadvertently, um, through DNA testing. Um, I think that today, to to bring it into the real world, <clears throat> today, any practitioner of, of adoption or child welfare services, whatever, um, who says, oh, don't worry, 
it, it, no one's going to find you or don't worry, it's going to it's going to stay closed, whether they're saying that to the adoptive parents or to the the um, pregnant woman or the, the man, if he's involved um, or the people who are involved um, says, oh, don't worry, fill in the blank because you won't you can't. It's unethical. Uh, you yeah. can't promise something you can't deliver on and you can't possibly know, you know, you're that that nine year old child is going to find her birth mother. I mean, because I it's it, they're going to go online and that's and as you've seen, people don't forget. I mean, this notion and and what child welfare told people, oh, you just give up your child and move on as though nothing happened, as though nothing happened. Yeah, you yeah. you you, I, you gave birth to a human being. Do they and still so, say that? Are you coming across that still? People are like everybody oh, just kind it, of oh, move sure on. Oh, sure, people, sure, people say that. I I hope yeah. rarely. Um, yeah. But I know sometimes um, yeah. and and people, you know, pre adoptive parents sometimes want to fool themselves, you know, uh, insulate themselves, you know. Yes. And by the way, over time, they generally change that and go, oh, I wish I had more information. Oh, I wish. But at the time, the, that insecure time, when am I going to bond with my kid? Is this going to happen? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it it feels OK to close it up a bit. And again, over time, you 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 generally learn better unless, you know, there's safety issues involved and there can be, you know, in child welfare in particular. Um, but yeah, and, and that is certainly the big profound change um, and DNA feeds into it, Internet feeds into it and social attitudes feed into it. I mean, we you know, the the the, the change that you asked about earlier, when did all this stuff start happening? It started happening in the 60s, 70s. You know, there was a civil rights revolution, a women's rights re revolution and, you know, all the societal upheaval of all sorts. And it was mostly toward more rights and greater transparency, mostly. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, and, and combined with. The, uh, legalized abortion combined with the advent of birth control, all that stuff uh, it, it changed adoption um, enormously um, and and for, mostly for the better and certainly to be more open and less less full of secrets and lies. Yeah. Wow. You know, I always I find so I have found since entering into this community and realizing that it exists, a lot of the people look like me. Right. And I come from a place where um, nobody looked like me. I mean, nobody had green eyes and this light skin and this kind of curly thick hair. I was always the only one um, that looked like this. And now I'm in this room. So, of course, I do the math and I do the, you know, race plays in. So you have Woodstock and you have hippie, you know, 60s into the 70s and things like that and free love. And I know in my parents' case very much so. So my parents had a relationship. He was white. He was black. Her family was not accepting of it. And uh, ultimately, um, she decided to keep me. I was born in 76. So she very much so could have terminated me. And that was very, uh, it was very possible. Um, it sounds like my dad was able to convince her not to do that. And her family disowned her uh, for a short period of time. So I found it really comforting when I started to realize, like, gosh, this really was happening. People are all sneaking around back in the day after the civil <laughs> rights and before the civil rights. And, you know, now you have a lot of people that look like me out there now. And um, now I'm getting a chance to meet other people. I always say we're kind of of the same vintage. We look the same. We have, a, we have some similar stories about the supersedes and things like that. So, um, gosh, fascinating and fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I think just in to respect your time, obviously. I know you have a hard stop. Um, anything else 
that's like pressing. I, I want to leave time for my last question, which is basically when is book three coming out and what are you doing mm-hmm. next? Because I know that your wheels are probably turning on that. Um, but anything else that would be pressing, like in terms of NCAP and resources that you need, like how do people help you? What help do you need, if any? So I want to understand that. And then, um, yeah, what's next for you? What are you working on? So those two well, things I'd love to so- kind of close on. I don't, it, 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 for reasons that we won't go into here, I don't think I'm going to be writing a book anytime soon, um, but hopefully not so soon. Um, it'll happen. It won't be an update of the book of okay. Adoption Nation. I think um, we need a, a, a newer, different perspective. It's still the only book of its kind, so it sort of holds up, yeah, um, yes. which is the good news. Um, the bad without belaboring it is that we haven't made more progress than we have and that I hope for, but that's what we're working for. So I focus on that work. Um, we're doing, so NCAP, anybody who wants to take a look, it's N, N, N for national, ncap-us.org um, is the website. And um, it, it is it is a consulting model, not for profit. So it's not really a place we get lots of. Can I volunteer? Can I volunteer? Not really. Um, you know, we're we're on the ground doing the work, and it's individual. You know, the individuals who make up the team um, who are embarked on it in var- in in very many different ways. I'll give you one example. Um, we we. We helped write, principally wrote a curriculum, a trauma-based curriculum for um, social workers um, that I informally, it's not the formal name, we're doing it in partnership with an, other organizations, but um, it's the, you know, it's the enabling families to succeed curriculum. How, you know, what do we need to know um, or what do professionals have to know um, it, it to treat it to work with their clients, to work with the people who are struggling, to work with people who are either maybe have uh, lost their kids um, because of abuse or neglect, or who are get, getting kids who were abused or neglected. Um, again, it's focused on that population principally. And the real quick numbers: there are about fifty thousand of those adoptions per year. Um, there may be a quarter that many of infant adoptions, and and a tiny number of inter-country adoption, you know, a few thousand a year. Um, and and yeah. almost all of those are special needs adoptions. So it, the, the, the big numbers, the big need <clears throat> is is in the child welfare population. And and, by, and I think it's important for me to say um, we work in all of those realms because, you know, if we we need to make more progress in all of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it shouldn't have to be that you need a DNA, DNA test to find the person who created you. That's um, right. It, it, it's that's just, right. that's, that's, it, it's good that, that that's available. It's wonderful for most people because not everything always works out, but for most people, but you shouldn't have to jump through those kinds of hoops. And institutionally, you know, in policy and in law, we, we sort of force people to do it. And so yeah. that means that law and policy are not in a great place. Um, you know, yeah. we remove kids sometimes from their homes for the wrong reasons, for reasons of race, economy, et cetera, finances. And, you know, that, that needs fixing. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so we, we produce this curriculum. We're going into one state, rolling it out for the whole state, uh, again, with partners. Um, and we hope that, you know, that'll be that'll be replicated in state after state. And that's this kind of systems change systems level change that we we want to accomplish because because it, I, you know you, you the, the dream is to change the world right 
this is what they say. So thank you. I totally appreciate it. And I also want to thank you because every time I meet a parent that's doing this work, wherever they're seated in the constellation, um, when I meet a parent that's either a foster parent or a parent that's adopted a child such as yourself, I always want to make sure I say thank you because you did research and you figured out how to be the parent that you did, your, your kids needed you to be. And I think that's totally um, what was missing in some cases. I had a great relationship with my parents. They weren't open in my search. They weren't open to the possibility that I actually was not a conservative white Christian. Um, which I was actually born, as I shared with you earlier, totally opposite. I mean, I always felt different. I, we were so close, and as for so, as as for as close as we were, this huge topic just was lost in this black hole, to which you know I'll, I can't get back now, and I can't speak to them anymore. So I appreciate you and the parent that is. I know I don't know you, and I don't live behind closed doors, mm -hmm. but thank you, thank you for like searching it and figuring it out, and. If I could change anything, I oh, wish absolutely. that my parents would have helped me. Yeah. So. Absolutely, and and that's that's ultimately what we need to do. I mean, we, we people who decide to adopt do so for lots of different reasons. But what we need to get to in a very real way, bottom line, is and and this is again, this is the change the world idealism. But but you got to have you you got to be shooting for the stars. When you have a, a baby, you know, through the old-fashioned way, it can be because the condom broke in the back seat, you know? It's not great family planning, but it is what it is. When you adopt, you do so methodically. You do so, you know, nearly 100% of the time, maybe 100, um, because you decided to travel this path. So the onus is different. Adoption at its best should be about finding families for children who need them, not about finding children for parents who want them. And it's a very important distinction. When we talk about the best interest of the child, we should really mean it. And if we're really working for the, those best interests, then we do want the resources to help that child be successful. Then we do want to be, to put into practice what we teach the kid, which is, oh, by the way, you should always be honest. Well, we built an institution that was not so much so. Um, that made people like your parents and many others uh, feel like they couldn't tell the truth, that they couldn't travel that path, even as they were teaching you that that's what you're supposed to do. And so if it's the best interest of child and we believe that and we act on that, then we behave differently. And that's, I guess, at the bottom line, what it needs to be about as best as we can, you know, fallible humans. But you gotta have, you gotta have some light that you're, you're running toward. Oh. Listen, I'm dropping Mike. Adam Hurtman just dropped me. That is the perfect ending. Thank you so much for spending time with me and educating, honestly, me and everybody that listens on the work that you do. It's super, super important. I hope you can retire one day and we won't need NCAP <laughs> services, but for the foreseeable future, I know we need you. So thank you. And um, I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. And good luck with your own journey. Thank you. When I started to expand my adoption industry and foster care network, I heard the same suggestion several times. Do you know Adam Perdman? You need to meet Adam Perdman. So, of course, I set out to find Adam and I booked him as a guest on the show. I am so thankful that he said yes. Soon into our conversation, it became clear to me why his name kept coming up. 
In a world where secrets and lies continue to exist, Adam and his work through NCAP was designed to move child welfare from its current model of being all about child placement to a new goal of where the bottom line is family success beyond placement. Every child deserves a safe, permanent, loving, and successful family. Achieving this is the foundational goal of Adam's mission through NCAP. There were so many words of wisdom shared during our conversation. It is an honor to be connected to Adam and watch him work. He's a wealth of information and a pioneer in the child welfare space. As Adam says, if it's really about the best interest of the child, we should really mean it. And if we're really working for those best interests, then we want those resources to help the child be successful. Adults, organizations, and institutions have an opportunity to course correct right now. They can do this by modeling the behavior that we expect, tell the truth, to build trust, and do it transparently to get this right. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the Adopted Diaries podcast and stay tuned for more inspiring stories and discussions. Please consider sharing this podcast with your networks. You never know who may need to hear this. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to us at info at 21mediagroup.com or connect with us on Instagram and now on threads at The Adoptee Diaries. You can also find me, Bethany Frazier, on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us on this important journey of understanding, compassion, and empowerment. Remember that together we can make a positive difference in the lives of adoptees and foster children. 